This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, we know analysts are continuing to warn about the damage imposing tariffs on Mexican goods might inflict, uh, inflict excuse me, on the markets. And this, as we've got U.S. and Mexican negotiators resuming their talks today. Let's find out where we are on this. Anna Edgerton is congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Also with us, Naha Katan. She is Mexico government and economy reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Mexico City. Uh, Anna, set the record straight. Where are we on this? Because, I mean, all of this must have surprised uh, Mexican officials. Yeah, that's right. You know, this was a surprise announcement that we got from the White House last week, and people have been scrambling to see how to respond and how to prevent these tariffs from going into place. There are two ways that this could be prevented from happening on Monday. One is to come to an agreement with the Mexican government so that they could show that they are addressing their immigration system in a way that satisfies President Trump. And that's what they're working on this week. The other way would be for Congress to pass some kind of measure that would prevent this from happening or gut Trump's authority to impose tariffs. But that is certainly not going to happen before Monday because Congress has already left town. Right. All right. So, Naha, come on in here. Give us the perspective from there in the Mexican capital. How are the Mexicans sort of positioning themselves here? And what are you hearing from your sources? Sure. So in Mexico, uh, there's been a very conciliatory tone from the president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, and his foreign minister. Uh, They're trying to uh, negotiate as long as possible and make sure that uh, these tariffs don't take effect. Um, And what we understand from the foreign minister, Marcelo Brard, who was in Washington still talking uh, with the U.S. administration, is that there was some progress reached. Uh, Trump has said not enough yet, but that they've begun to see eye to eye on one issue, which is the influx of migrants uh, is is far surpassing the abilities of, of either country and that this needs to be addressed directly. And that's kind of their, their point of, uh, you know, departure so that they could actually sit down and hopefully reach a, negoti- uh, reach a conclusion. So, Anna, give us a little D.C. sort of beltway context here. Is this rating as sort of the highest worry right now? Put it in the, the pantheon, the list, as it were, of what's top of mind across D.C.? Well, it's been hard to kind of tease out this week because it really depends on who you talk to and yeah. what their constituents are saying. While all of this is going on and you have a lot of Senate Republicans who are very concerned about what these tariffs will mean for their constituents, especially in farm country, you have other representatives and other senators from other districts and other states that are less concerned with trade and also looking at kind of the political environment. You still have, have House Democrats talking about oversight investigations, even reaching the level of impeachment discussions. So it's kind of a split-screen discussion here in D.C., but with everyone out of town, 
we're certainly looking forward to Monday with not much hope that Congress will really be able to act to prevent these tariffs. So, Naha, I am curious, too, if Mexican officials are just watching what's happened over the last month in terms of U.S.-China trade. And are they, though, a bit nervous that the U.S.-Mexico negotiations, which we kind of thought were done, right, to some extent, uh, just waiting for the past uh, passage of the new NAFTA, um, are they worried that, you know, things could somehow get out of hand? Absolutely. I mean, the same day that uh, Lopez Obrador ordered Congress to sort of look at the USMCA deal and push it through, that's the the same day that Trump ordered the t- uh, threatened the tariffs. So it came out of left field. It really blindsided them. Uh, they've they've mentioned you know that they had no idea this was coming, uh, and and already we're seeing the effects um, on forecasts for the economy. In fact, economists are already lowering uh, their forecast for growth for this year to near 1%, even if the deal works out, because this sort of uh, relationship that we'd seen that was heading toward progress is kind of broken. And and now we don't know exactly where it's going to go next. The uncertainty is rising. So, uh, yeah, there is concern, definitely. And so, Anna, you know, you mentioned that some Senate Republicans had expressed some dismay. I feel like this is maybe the strongest example that we've seen so far of folks in the GOP breaking with the president. But ultimately, how serious is that? You talk to lawmakers all the time. Is this going to be the thing that starts to sort of open that crack a little bit? Well, that's certainly something that we're looking for. And we had an interesting report yesterday that Mitch McConnell had actually warned White House officials that President Trump really needs to come and speak to Republicans directly before these tariffs go into effect. And the suggestion there was that these tariffs should be delayed until Congress is back and the president is back from Europe and they can get into the same room and the president can make his case. Because like Naha said, this really took people by surprise in previous trade uh, actions from the White House and previous tariff announcement. The president had kind of forecast that this was coming, but like the Mexicans, lawmakers in the United States were also kind of taken off guard. All right. So what's next, guys? Naha, what's the next date we kind of focus on? Is it just Monday? No, I think the meetings are still going on today. We, we need to keep track of everything that's happening um, today, tomorrow, over the weekend. Uh, the president of Mexico is holding a rally in Tijuana, uh, you know, right at the border. Uh, he says it's to kind of bolster uh, you know, relations with the U.S., but also mm-hmm. call for respect for Mexicans and immigrants. It's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, how he threads the needle there and, and where his rhetoric is going to go, because he's been very uh, conciliatory, as I said before. He used to call his relationship with Me- with the U.S., uh, quote-unquote, peace and love. Right. And we'll see if that ends this weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point, because we really had seen, and you pointed this out earlier, Naha, very rightly, that we had really seen this new president in, in Mexico, AMLO, and President Trump really coming together on a lot of issues. And as you say, that took a hard uh, left turn when this announcement last week. Naha Catan is Mexico government and economy reporter joining us on on the phone from our bureau in Mexico City and Anna Edgerton, congressional reporter. Ain't like the real thing, baby. So we 
want to talk a little bit about real estate, REITs specifically. And as a group, as we mentioned earlier, measured by the Bloomberg U.S. REITs Index, it's up 17% this year. That's outperforming the 13% gain in the S&P 500. Here with a look at the group, back with us, is Calvin Schnoor. He's economist at NAREIT, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, based in Washington, D.C., back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about what we've been seeing in the REIT universe. The REIT sector is doing quite well. They're doing well in the stock market. They're doing well in their properties. They're doing well in their earnings. It's been a good start to a good year. So one of the things that struck me is infrastructure, the best performing of the, of the categories you look at. You look at office, data centers, shopping centers, single-family homes, manufactured homes, and they're all up pretty significantly, high double or high double digits in terms of like almost 20%, and in, in a lot of cases, over 20% in the case of infrastructure. Why? Well, with the infrastructure, this is not what people talk about when they say, oh, are we going to build bridges? This right. is this is the infrastructure of the digital economy. Which so is these lazy. are the cell towers. Yeah. So we know that the digital economy is really hot. And you look at data centers, you look at cell towers, you know, people talk about putting something in the cloud. Well, the cloud doesn't actually exist up above our heads. They're in buildings that hold a lot of servers, and REITs own those. These tech-oriented REIT sectors are performing very well because we're all using the Internet. It plays into that Blackstone deal, right, that they just did, $18.7 billion, uh, playing into really the Amazon effect and buying up uh, a big warehouse. Uh, And you do hear this story. I feel like I've been hearing this story for the last few years, and it's not just a U.S. story. It's a global story in terms of producing, building, buying up warehouses, investing in warehouse space. This is how the world is buying things and will continue to do so. That's right. I would say certainly even even going back the past five years, this sector has been outperforming and it really shows no sign of slowing. And this is not a real estate phenomenon. This is just the way our country's working, the way globally people are, are buying, people are interacting, and you need the digital infrastructure. And that requires some real estate. And the REITs own a good chunk of that well, real the estate. Same thing for the cloud, right? You know, you go to states around the country and there's just these big buildings and it's all yeah. about storage for cloud and it's cheap. Or real estate, if you get outside those major cities, but that's what you're seeing build it, you know, being built all around the country. And so, when you think about using this as an economic predictor, REITs as an economic predictor in terms of, especially the U.S. economy, all of us looking for signs of some sort of weakness, trying to give us a sense of of when we need to get worried about any sort of downturn. Where do you start to see that first in the data that you look at? Where would you? Well, it's true that this is a good indicator because who are their tenants, their businesses, their business people? And if you see some slacking in business demand, it's going to show up in the demand for the real estate. Now, the place that you would see it first is in the hotels because they have the shortest leases. You look at the office sector, some of the retail, you're having you know, five or ten year leases, so you don't see as much of a direct mm. impact. Um, hotel sector is doing well. There's still a lot of business travel. Uh, I was just talking with executives from all across the REIT industry at REIT Week, our nas- mm-hmm. national investor conference, and most of the executives are saying they may have some concerns about macro issues, but their business is doing well. Well, and yeah, let's talk about that a little bit further because 
I think there are some questions about the economic outlook, certainly here in the United States. Inverted yield curve, does that mean a recession? We had Jay Powell of the Fed, of course, not necessarily say he'd consider cutting rates specifically, but certainly signaled that he's watching the data. We get the monthly jobs report um, tomorrow. You know, lower interest rates, good for the real estate economy, for REITs overall. At the same time, you don't want the economy coming undone. So how do you balance kind of what we're talking about right now in terms of macro issues? The first thing I'd say is the overall U.S. economy is doing is doing well. It's not doing great. You know, we saw good growth in the first quarter. We've been expecting the economy to slow this year, even before you had these trade wars coming on. Now, the trade wars are, are th- this is a big issue. This is a big issue, and it could slow growth quite a bit. But you're coming from something around 3%. uh, It's not going to push you into a recession by itself. So you have a good backdrop, which generates demand for real estate. Now, you talked about interest rates. And interest rates, you know, financing rates are good right now. The question is whether this inverted yield curve is a warning that the good times aren't going to last. Now, in the past, Inverted yield curve often meant we saw economies slowing quite a bit, but there are a lot of things that this cycle is different from others in terms of the Fed low inflation. Got to leave it on that note. Calvin Schnorr, he's economist at NARI, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You got the juice. All right, so a little window into my travel habits. I think you probably already know this. You kind of run for one of these. Entertainment Weekly. Yes. Got to pick it up and got to go by Jamba. It's Get so a smoothie. True. Um, and it's now just Jamba. They're dropping the juice. Jeff yes. Henry is the president. He's based down in Hotlanta here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio to tell us about what feels like kind of a reboot, right? I mean, sort of looking at this pretty successful company that we've known as Jamba Juice. Now we just know as Jamba. What's behind that move to start? Why no juice in the name? Awesome. Well, thank you guys for the invitation. It's great to be here today. Um, And so the the latest on Jamba is it's really the fact that, you know, Jamba's been around for almost 30 years. Uh, We've been kind of the leader in the category. We helped kind of create the the smoothie and bowl and and juice category. And the category has certainly evolved a lot over the last 25 years. Evolved Uh, meaning more competition, right? More competition. (laughs) And also kind of the, the needs of our guests have changed and evolved as well. So uh, what we've announced today is really how we're growing up with our consumers and kind of we're making changes to our menu. We're making changes to our digital ecosystem and to our logo and branding. Talk about that. Jason and I talk about this. I mean, I constantly am looking at ingredients. My 16-year-old has been doing that for years as well. So tell me about as you're kind of meeting the demands of your customer, how does looking at what is actually going into everything um, kind of play into this transformation. Yeah, we've been listening very closely to our guests. And so a lot of these uh, transformations are coming from our guests. They're asking for us to have a broader menu with more kind of plant-based options, more options with reduced sugar. And so that's kind of what we're doing. We're still going to have our classic smoothies on there for sure. We're still going to have juices on the menu, but we're also going to expand into more kind of plant-based offerings, plant-based milks, plant-based proteins perhaps in the future. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's exciting times. Talk to us about the digital side of this because I went to pick up my lunch today at a place just down the street, dig in, I can name it. And I walked in, I was like, oh, I'm a sucker. I'm waiting in line. Right, like everybody right. else is just like 
rocking up, picking up their stuff and, and going. How does that play into, how does that sort of consumer habit, especially in urban areas like this, play into your strategy? Yeah, I mean, certainly in, in, in our category, convenience and accessibility is really important. It's really important because obviously everyone's on the go. We're trying to help our guests with their on-the-go lifestyle. So the ability to kind of perhaps even order before you get to the store, you can come into the store, you can go to our grab-and-go cooler. It's almost like a frictionless transaction. Or you, can, you don't have to even leave your office. You can do third-party delivery. Mm. So convenience and accessibility are certainly key and so we're doing a lot both from a point of sale system and a whole new app that we think is best in class you've got a fascinating background you spent many years at the coca-cola company uh you know here you are at jamba Uh, i'm just curious about how do you see this space you know in terms of products because i feel like the whole food space continues to go through an evolution and i'm just curious who you see as you know Who's going to survive long term? How do you see like an older company like a Pepsi or Coca-Cola, you know, making that transformation? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously the, the smart thing is always to be listening to your guests and, and looking at consumer trends, right? We're not making changes blindly. We're clearly listening to what's going on in the marketplace and being very tied in to those trends and those movements. Uh, and so we take a lot of pride in the work we've done over the past few months to get us to this point here on Jamba. Uh, and it's really kind of anticipating what those guests need and responding appropriately to really survive. But the older companies that have been around for a while, how do you see them making the transformation? We see this even with like consumer products, consumer foods, right, that have been around for 100 years. You know, no one would ever thought, you know, their future is in question. But you do see significant changes in what consumers want. You're, you guys are playing directly into it. Yeah, so certainly I think innovation and, and having the appropriate kind of investment structure to to support a long-term innovation profile, uh, uh, sorry, pipeline, but also the ability to move with speed because the marketplace is changing so rapidly that you really have to kind of stay on top of it to, to be able to evolve appropriately. You mentioned investment infrastructure, which leads me naturally to sort of the family that you're in now, right, yeah. Focus Brands. Uh, Rourke Capital, I believe, is sort of the architect of all that based down uh, where you are in Atlanta. You know, put together some very well-known brands, whether it's Moe's, Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's, Carvel, Schlotzky's, Austin. Uh, How does it all work? Help us understand how that all works together sort of as a portfolio and what Jamba sort of leverages from that. Yeah, so it's it's uh, Focus Brands is clearly a leader in in the franchising and restaurant industry. Uh, kind of Jamba is their most recent a- acquisition. They have seven brands in the portfolio, like Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's, uh, just to name a couple. Uh, and the great thing is they have a, a, a great investment structure and support structure with a lot of uh, professionals across functional areas that re- that pertain back to the restaurant industry mm. that enable us to move with great speed. So we're bringing all these changes to the marketplace that are pretty significant in nature in just a few months after the acquisition. Uh, And we've got in-house kind of experts in real estate, in-house experts in both design uh, as well as in sales and development. So we can move with speed because we're not relying on outside parties to kind of help us move. All all the brands can actually fight at a heavier weight class. And outside of the public markets. And outside of the public markets. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think about, like, how do you guys think about location or the space once you walk in the door? Because I know that I certainly respond to places in terms of I walk in the door and I've often, like, walked right out if I just don't get a good feel. So how does that kind of work into what you're doing? Well, certainly from a real estate strategy standpoint and kind of the location of the store is we're obviously we're doing a full remodel on our stores because we want the ambiance in the store to be very kind of very, very current and modern. Yeah. But also it, it just comes back to accessibility. Right. So we want to be in high traffic areas where we can kind of delight, engage guests, no matter what their needs are. The great thing about smoothies and bowls is you're satisfying so many different need states. You could be coming in after a workout trying to get, you know, more p- protein and replenishment. It could be just you just want to pick up a uh, pick me up during the course of your day. So. 
it's a it's a category that has traffic throughout the day parts, and so you just got to find the right places uh, in cities and markets across the country to get your guests in the door. And how do you keep up with these sort of almost like micro trends within wellness? I mean, we had the the Well and Good folks in six months ago, mm-hmm. and to their credit, they called oat milk, and I was like, wait, what? Oat milk? <laughs> and now. I'm drinking oat milk. Like they called it. How do you how do you see those things that, you know, maybe sort of around the corner, but then clearly at least have a moment, if not a longer moment? Yeah. Oat milk's really good, by the way. I'm, I'm, it's a, I'm a fan of it as well. I'm a huge fan. Oat milk latte, our producer, Isaac Webster, introduced me to it, of course, in L.A. But, yeah. you know, yeah. there you go. Um, but for us, you know, we have both we have in-house culinary experts. We have in-house registered dietitians. Uh, so we're, that combination of, of folks kind of working with our guests and our consumers to get feedback in terms of what they're looking for. So we're always testing and learning all the time. Uh, you know, a lot of kind of what we're announcing today to the marketplace has already been tested in a number of, of markets, both in terms of the interest from the guests and also speed of service. Because for us, to your point earlier about the, the lines, you don't want to wait in line very long. So you got to be able to put your order in and get your smoothie within just a couple minutes. Otherwise, you're right. not going to come you back. You want it like Uber. The Uberization of the world. We right. say it a lot. I am just curious. When do you your franchises, when do they get the most traffic? Is it morning? Is it lunch? I know you said you get traffic through the day, but I do wonder if there's a hot spot for you guys. Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly, we do actually do get traffic throughout the day. I'd say often, depending upon the, the real estate location, right. uh, that sense. plays a big part of it. Certainly kind of that mid-afternoon day part is a big time. But now with our expanded menu, because we now actually have bowls, so acai right. bowls, which are the biggest and fastest yeah. growing part of this category, you're getting a lot of people coming in for like lunch, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's a meal unto itself. Uh, and so we're actually seeing some nice pickup in the lunchtime day part. Cool. Really interested to see how all this goes. I know we'll be uh, trying it out we're, when we're on the road for sure. Jeff Henry, president of Jamba, based down in Atlanta, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio today. Melissa Etheridge for you on this Thursday. Well, we've got a great story to tell you about. Uh, towing an iceberg to bring water to millions. I bet we got your attention with that one. Great story in this week's issue of the magazine, hitting newsstands as we speak, also online at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg. Carolina Winter is Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg Business Week. She wrote it. She's with us on the phone from Boston. Also with us, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. I have to say, uh, Carolina, Jason and I were talking about this issue of the magazine sooner than you think, and it really has sparked a lot of conversations at home for both of us, and that includes your story. Tell us about what's going on, this one man's pursuit and goal of towing an iceberg to his hometown. Yeah, so so actually converting icebergs into drinking water is something that people have talked about doing since at least the 1940s. But this guy is, is kind of an extraordinary person. He's a marine salvage expert. He um, uh, has made a career out of saving, uh, you know, giant ships in distress in all parts of the world. And he um, is turning his efforts now to to tow an iceberg to Cape Town, where he's from, and which, as the world knows, uh, has been suffering from severe water shortages for a while. Even though those shortages are a little bit better than they were last year, they're they're still pretty bad. And 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 I should add to that, the uh, he, it's remarkable he has now secured funding for a pioneer tow, which will he says cost more than two hundred million dollars. So, Joel, help us understand this in the context of the magazine. You put this on the cover. I mean, in a mm-hmm. in a story or excuse me, in an issue full of around the corner ideas, 
This one clearly stood out to you. Why? So part of it was to think about this as a sooner-than-you-think issue, right? And this is a a moment in in the year where we look at, kind of in a futurist sense, what's out there. And it could be near-term, short-term, even long-term. And what I what we noticed when we put together this kind of collection of stories was like, look, if we want to just talk about bad news and technology and the tech clash and antitrust stuff, and we can do that. We can do that all all day long, all week long, all month long. I can program that forever. <laughs> but there's also this other thing that's happening in the world that is the spirit of technology and innovation. And I think that the Carolina story really gets to that yeah. of like there's a problem in the world there's a country that doesn't have enough drinking water and there's a guy who's like bold enough to be like i got a crazy crazy solution to tow a hundred million ton iceberg from Antarctica to south africa that's why you put it on the covers because it's like that's bold yeah. right big thinking out of the box, completely out of the box. Right. And then he's actually going to do it. And sooner than you think because it's happening. It's happening. Uh, I mean, Caroline, what's involved? And and one of the things that's fun about your stories is you talk about iceberg cowboys. You talk about the Saudi family. Uh, they were making investments decades ago. I mean, it's not a new idea, as you point out. It's right. It's, it's not an, a new idea. But there are um, significant challenges. I think he, he is going to the Antarctic and trying to to you know laugh through a giant iceberg. The hmm. iceberg towing that happens in most of the world are much much smaller Arctic icebergs, and this guy wants to go to the Antarctic, which is known to be some of the worst waters, if not the worst in the world. Their waves are typically around between five to fifteen meters. Winds reach eighty miles an hour. Storms pass through every three or four days, and so imagine being out there trying to put a giant net around a block of ice, and then securing it to super tankers and then, you know, flowing with it with the currents for the next 80 to 90 days. Um, it, it, it sounds actually pretty difficult. So my, my little favorite detail in here is that I, I wouldn't have the foresight to do this, but but someone on his end did, which was you got to insure this. Like right. Lo- Lloyd's <laughs> London is involved yeah. to say, oh, by the way, that li- that iceberg. What if it fell apart in the middle of the ocean? Right, yeah. you're in you're in shipping lanes, right? Yeah. So from a logistics standpoint, Carolina, what did you what did you learn beyond even Lloyd's of London that they had to take into account while they put this plan together? Oh my God, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much to think about. I mean, first of all, being in that sort of sort of waters, it, most people are incredibly seasick for, for about three days until they get used to it. And then you have to have oceanographers guiding you from afar so that you know which current to stay in so you don't get stuck in an eddy so that you know when to switch currents to go the right direction. Um, there, I mean, they have to use materials like the net that they want to catch this iceberg with. It has to be made from something that is obviously buoyant because the metal cables that are incredibly strong, they aren't, and they would just immediately sink to the ocean floor. So there's all sorts of things you have to think about. Right. It's a really powerful yeah. story and, and some a real powerful problem images for too. Yeah, yeah exactly. certainly a real problem. And if this works, it is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Like several other things in the magazine, like the gene therapy piece, yeah. a total game changer. We talked about that yesterday. So much good stuff to read. This is the cover story. Carolina Winter, she wrote it. She's a P&I reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us on the phone from Boston. And Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us here in New York. 
I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone, let's get to the drive to the close. Tony Shera is Director of Research and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. He's joining us on the phone from Seattle. Tony, nice to have you here. We've got a rally underway. In fact, an uptick in the equity markets. Uh, I think some optimism among investors when that headline crossed about the U.S. giving potentially more time before the imposition of tariffs against Mexico. Uh, so maybe a little bit of relief there. Uh, how do you see the markets right now? Because you have this thinking about, you know, understanding the equity markets by looking at Netflix versus Discovery Communications. Explain that. I think I get it, but go ahead. Well, thanks for having me on. No, I, br- I brought that up just because we own Discovery Communications. Um, we're value people. We yeah. want to migrate towards that, which is contentious because that's where you find the best, you know, deals if you can find a good, high-quality company. You know, you look at Discovery, and it's trading at like seven and a half times next year's earnings, right? But we're in a market right now where it is capitalizing and overcapitalizing. We would say there's a lot of misallocation going on on the things that don't have maybe earnings so much or maybe cash flow so much, but have, you know, attractive-looking top-line revenue growth stories. And so what you get out of that is you get a Netflix, for example, trading 100 times. Okay, so allocators of capital into securities or, or stocks, you know, you're just getting really bad odds on a good portion of the market that's very, very overcapitalized. And as we know, we've been in such a long-term, long-tail growth versus value market that what that's caused is misallocation, we would argue, in the overall indices. You know, the S&P 500 right now has 30% or so of its weighting in tech. Not all of that is the egregious, very highly valued um, stocks out there, but a lot is. And when that comes home to roost, and it will, it will, and that's what people right now are kind of complacent about that. And they kind of forget that booms end in busts. They don't end in an orderly way that just eases people back to normality. That's not how markets work. So we think it's a, um, you know, this, this trade of high top-line revenue growth, chasing that because we're in this generally low-growth environment, that might continue for the next six, six to nine months or 12 months or something. We don't know when it stops or when it goes parabolic and then dies out. Um, we, we never know that, but this is a good time to migrate your portfolio back towards the lower P.E. quintiles of the world because that's where you can find value. Well, and Tony, we certainly don't know the when. Do you have any sense of the what or the why uh, the music may stop here and, and maybe cause a correction? Well, that's, that's why I'm saying right now there's no visible yeah. reason to think that it will necessarily stop in the next several months. Um, our high conviction belief is that what you're ultimately going to get is a resurgence of kind of you know, middle America, kind of the blood and guts type stuff in the economy. And think of it very simply as thinking about home building and household formation. So 86 million millennials strong, and they really haven't quite yet coalesced to get their lives going, to get married, have kids. They've started, 
you know, early stages, but they haven't quite yet coalesced to, to get those hard-charging animal spirits to come into play to make that part of the economy really start ticking. When it does, we think Powell's going to have to get back right on, on track to, uh, to raise rates, whereas you've got this newly developed consensus that, you know, we're going to get two, maybe three more rate cuts throughout the next six to nine months. Well, that's a so refreshing we, uh, that, that's yeah. a, re- a refreshing perspective in the sense of I feel like all we've heard for the past few weeks, certainly the past few days, is yeah. rate cut, rate cut, rate cut. Yep. Um, yep. But you think we could see a, a raise potentially depending on how this plays out? Yeah, we, we absolutely do. And again, you might not see that in the back half of this year, but we think that that's what's going to be at play when you look at the demand supply imbalances in housing uh, and the housing stock. We think that's going to be a theme that no one's really thinking about right now over the next three to five years plus. Let's talk about some of the names that you like. You mentioned um, Discovery Communications. You do like these old media companies. Disney's another one. That stock has been on fire. It's up about 25% this year. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, for it to trade at about a market or a little bit of a discount to a market multiple is historically very attractive as an entry point to that name. And, uh, you know, the, just take Hulu and what they're going to—they're going to have a trifecta of direct-to-consumer with Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and now they're in control of Hulu. Hulu might be a weapon against something ne- like Netflix. I feel like I'm picking on Netflix a lot here. I don't, I don't mean to particularly, but yeah, I mean that, that, Hulu's been owned by this consortium, right? And so what it needed is one boyfriend, yeah. not like five or six, right? And now that it is, it could be a, a true weapon against, uh, against what Netflix is doing, in our view. Talk to us a little bit about the healthcare space. I feel like everybody's always looking for a good name there. It's going to be a huge issue in the upcoming election. What do you like in that sector? Well, I mentioned, I think, in the notes to you at Amgen, mm-hmm. you know, that's a stock that you know, when you don't have a visible and growing top line in today's environment, you just get discounted. And so Amgen's a stock that for the better part of its trading life, being in existence as a publicly traded stock, it's been kind of a glam stock, you know, that's had a high multiple, higher than market multiple ascribed to it. And today you've got a uh, 13 times something like that multiple on it uh, on a price to earnings basis. Right. And They've got fantastic drugs coming to market, but they've got to replace some of the older legacy drugs that are coming off. And in the meantime, it just continues to generate just massive amounts of free cash flow each and every year, a dividend that they've raised multiple times since they initiated it. It's a truly great company that's on sale right now. Oh, interesting. Um, hey, and you also like a home builder, NVR. Uh, it's up almost 40% this year. It is, but... You know, coming into 2018, it was a $3,700 stock that went down to about 2100 right. and has since recovered. And that's kind of the story of what's gone on in the last 18 months or so. Anything that was economically sensitive or economically related th- throughout 2018 crescendoed towards negativity by Christmas of 2018 and has since recovered. We, th- we still think there's a tremendous uh, amount more to go to the upside on a stock like that over the next perhaps decade plus because of, the, of, of what I was talking about earlier, the demand supply imbalances that are, uh, that are uh, structural in nature. A lot of fun to catch up with you. Tony Schur is Director of Research and Portfolio Manager for Smead Capital Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.